Formula One is a sport where everyone involved has one common goal, and that is to be the world champion. At the start of each season, every driver and every team line up on the grid with dreams of taking the ultimate prize, regardless of how far-fetched a concept it might be for some of the smaller teams. But in order to win the world championship, you have to beat someone else. Sometimes it's easy. Many times have drivers won the title without much competition, and those seasons, by and large, have been quite forgettable. But it's the seasons where there have been truly titanic, season-long battles which always stay in the memory. And there is no better example of that than 1976. This was a time where Formula One was really starting to gain traction, no pun intended, where the top drivers were now becoming sporting superstars akin with footballers, and also a time where the sport was at its most dangerous. And two drivers battled all season long to take the ultimate prize. But the story of 1976 and the battle between these two titans is remarkable. From amazing performances, off-track politics, a near-fatal accident resulting in the most remarkable of comebacks, and, come the end, a surprise victor, it had everything. Here is the story of perhaps the greatest battle for a Formula 1 driver's title the sport has ever and may ever see. I'm Rob Manifield, and welcome to F1 Everything, Episode 8, Louder versus Hunt. Before we embark on this story, allow me to give a brief overview of the previous season in 1975 to set the scene for this battle for the ages. Who was the man to beat? Well, quite simply, Austrian driver Nicky Lauda was the king of Formula One. He'd signed for Ferrari in 1974 and took his first of three drivers' titles in 75. He wasn't just quick, he had an amazing technical mindset and was smarter than perhaps any driver who had raced before him. He was technical, he was mechanical, he was arrogant, but damn he was good. The sort of driver you had to respect. He was a private man who didn't flaunt his celebrity status in front of the world. His 1976 rival, however, was the complete opposite to this. Not that he wasn't fast, he was very fast. What he lacked in technical expertise, he more than made up for in guts and determination. But James Hunt of Great Britain was very much a playboy. He drank too much, he smoked too much, and he partied too hard. He wasn't your typical role model racing driver that, say, Lauder was. But behind the wheel of a racing car, he was as formidable an opponent as anyone we've ever seen. And in 1975, in an inferior car to his rival Lauda, Hunt dragged his Heskiff to the flag and he took his first ever Grand Prix victory at the Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort. Whilst Lauda took the title, Hunt finished a still impressive fourth in the standings, but the money had all dried up for his team and team owner Lord Heskiff couldn't find a new sponsor and therefore decided to end the team. Hunt a rising star in the world of Formula 1 was left without a drive for the following year. The hunt, again no pun intended, was on for James to find a drive for 1976, but he had little success. 
It looked like all of his options had run out. But that was until Emerson Fittipaldi left McLaren, leaving that much sought after seat available. James swooped in and since there was no other top level drivers available, McLaren signed him to a contract for 1976, which was worth a total of £200,000. Because of inflation, this contract would be worth approximately £1.3 million in 2018. However, in typical James Hunt fashion, he caused a bit of a stir straight away by refusing to sign a clause in his contract which stated that he would have to wear a suit for all sponsor functions. In fact, he would often turn up to high-profile events in t-shirts and jeans, sometimes even barefoot. Like I said, he wasn't your typical role model racing driver. At the season opener in Brazil, Nicky Lauda took victory, but the real surprise of the weekend was James Hunt's qualifying pace. In fact, he took pole position. However, he'd lose the lead off the line almost immediately as Lauda's teammate Clay Recazzone jumped both Hunt and Lauda. Recazzone, Hunt, Lauda, and Jean-Pierre Gerrier did battle around the old Interlagos track. The layout had much of the current layout F1 uses today, however the track was just shy of 8km long. Go and have a look at the circuit map online, it looked like an absolute beast of a track. Recazzone and Gerrier would collide, causing Clay to pit for repairs, leaving Lauda, Hunt and Gerrier to battle on. Despite James's best efforts, he was forced into retirement after suffering from a stuck throttle. Lauda would go on to take an easy victory from the front in the end, finishing over 20 seconds ahead of his nearest rival. Only 7 of the 22 starters remained on the lead lap. The second round of the championship at Kyle Army in South Africa was fairly similar to Brazil, what with Hunt taking pole position alongside Lauda. And much like Brazil, Hunt was jumped off the line, however this time it was Nicky leading the charge. However Hunt would finish the South African Grand Prix and he would do so in second place behind Lauda's Ferrari, who led from the start. After the disappointment of a non-scoring opening round, James got his championship campaign underway. Lauda, however, was already 12 points ahead of Hunt in the driver's standings, with 18 points out of a possible 18. You see, it was 9 points for a race win back in those days, and only the top 5 drivers and constructors scored points. Round 3, the United States Grand Prix West, took place around the narrow streets of Long Beach in California. This was all actually only the second time in Formula 1 history that the same country hosted more than one Grand Prix in a single season. Italy was the first nation to do this in 1957, with the Italian Grand Prix taking place at Monza, and a Grand Prix took place on the narrow, bumpy streets of Pescara. This particular race saw 200,000 people attend, and it still holds the record for being the longest circuit in terms of lap distance Formula 1 has ever used for a Grand Prix. You ready for this? The track was just shy of 26 kilometers long, marginally over 16 miles. However, it was ridiculously dangerous. 
It was a track that even the great Enzo Ferrari feared, and even at a time such as the 1950s, where driver safety was very low on the sports list of priorities, Enzo refused to let his cars race, because he was scared that they wouldn't survive the race. 57 was the last time a race was held there, and Sir Sterling Moss was the circuit's final victor. But enough about crazy, almost mythical Italian death trap street circuits, Long Beach in 1976 was the site of Nicky Lauda's first defeat of the season. He would finish second behind teammate Recazzoni. Where did Hunt finish? Well, he didn't. He crashed out on the third lap. After just three rounds, Lauda had an 18 points advantage over Hunt. You may be wondering, what was so spectacular about this Lauda-Hunt rivalry? So far, Lauda was practically kicking Hunt's ass from pillar to post at every given turn. Well, at the fourth round in Spain, their feud really started to ignite, and as we've come to expect from Ferrari over the decades, it was done politically, and Hunt and McLaren were not happy, to say the least. Hunt desperately needed a breakthrough. Lauda had won two of the opening three rounds, whilst Hunt had failed to finish in two of the opening three rounds, and in the one race he had finished in, he had been bettered by the Austrian. James needed a win. The 1976 Spanish Grand Prix is a fairly controversial one. Firstly, it was the race which saw Ken Tyrrell's team arrive with six wheels on their wagon. That's right, Tyrrell raced a sixth-wheeled Formula One car, and funnily enough, it was quick. However, for the purposes of this story, the amazing six-wheeled Tyrrell is going to have to take a back seat, as the Spanish Grand Prix is known for a more political reason. But first, the race. James Hunt took pole position again, and despite being jumped off the line by louder again, he would have fantastic race pace, and took his first win of the season with Lauda finishing in second. However, not long after the race, Hunt and his McLaren were promptly disqualified from the race results, and James's points were given to Lauda. Why? Well, the stewards found out that Hunt's McLaren was 1.8 centimetres too wide. 1.8 centimetres. To put that into perspective, that's about the width of the tip of your little finger. McLaren would appeal this result, and two months later, they would be reinstated as winners, as McLaren argued that the car's width increased because of the tyres expanding during the race. But at the time of this, it was heartbreaking for James and for McLaren. They desperately needed that win, and it was snatched away by the teeniest of technicalities. And with Lauda winning rounds 5 in Belgium at Zolder, and round 6 in Monaco, and Hunt failing to finish both of them races, the gap between the two, after 6 races, was a mind-bending 47 points. After several races, where the McLaren had suffered from technical failure after technical failure, preventing any real challenge to be made against Lauda in his Ferrari, McLaren found a breakthrough at the French Grand Prix. 
after Lauda and Hunt finished in 3rd and 5th respectively at the 7th race of the year in Sweden, Hunt took his first legitimate race win of the season at Round 8 at the French Paul Ricard circuit. To the relief of his McLaren team, Hunt took pole position and the race win, and even more importantly, Lauda suffered from his first retirement of the season after suffering an engine problem on lap 8 of the race. And to cap off a pretty fantastic weekend for James, it was at this race weekend where the decision to overturn his disqualification from the Spanish Grand Prix was made, giving James his 9 points back. Despite all this, Hunt was still 26 points behind Lauda. McLaren's breakthrough had come as well from a slight mechanical adjustment they'd made to the car. It was actually the positioning of the oil coolers which had caused a huge effect to the car's aerodynamics and made the car's handling awful. Simply through trial and error, they found the issue, moved the oil coolers by as little as an inch, and James Hunt and the McLaren team didn't look back for the rest of the season. Hunt and Lauda could now erase each other at the front in a fair fight. And just to show what sort of guy James Hunt was, after the fiasco of the Spanish Grand Prix and their disqualification, James was seen with a sticker on the rear wing of his car saying, Caution, Wide Vehicle. Now that is top banter. The Formula One Circus arrived into Brands Hatch for the British Grand Prix. The country was going through one of its hottest summers on record, but that didn't stop a record-breaking 77,000 people turning up for the race, all of which were there to see Britain's new sporting star try to win his home race. Through his newfound success at the front of the grid, the British people had taken James to their hearts. However, whilst Hunt was very quick at his home Grand Prix, it was louder on pole position for the race, with the local hero settling for second on the grid. However, off the line, it wasn't Hunt or Lauder with the killer's start, it was Recazzoni in the second Ferrari. He'd made an absolute flyer and challenged Lauder into Paddock Hill Bend. However, the two Ferrari drivers collided, leaving Hunt with nowhere to go and he made contact with the second Ferrari. Lauder was able to continue, his Ferrari hardly damaged. The race was red flagged due to the carnage and Hunt made his way back to his garage. However, the debate immediately began as to whether he'd be able to restart the race. James hadn't completed the opening lap as he'd made his way back to the pits through a side road and it was argued by the race officials that because he hadn't completed the opening lap and because he would be taking the restart in the spare car, he wouldn't be allowed to take the restart at all. The debate raged on for what felt like an eternity and the fans in the grandstand opposite the pits became impatient. They started clapping their hands and chanting, We want Hunt! We want Hunt! All this was helping McLaren as it provided them vital time to repair Hunt's original car. Eventually the organisers gave in and allowed Hunt to restart the race, much to the crowd's delight. There was no such problems for much of the race. That was until lap 45. There was no real dramas up to lap 45, but as the exit Paddock Hill Bend, Hunt made his move into Druids, 
whilst Lauda suffered from a gearbox issue and he took the lead of his home race. The crowd went mad. Hunt would go on to take a popular victory and celebrated on the rostrum in front of his adoring fans. But behind the scenes, Ferrari along with two other teams including Tyrrell had staged a protest against the result and whilst the original protests were essentially ignored, Ferrari appealed the decision and two months later in late September, during a tribunal hearing in Paris, Ferrari won their appeal and James Hunt was stripped of his victory, giving Lauda the full nine points. There's nothing worse than a Grand Prix being settled in a courtroom. However, two weeks after the race at Brands Hatch, James Hunt's championship charge was given a lifeline, as we all know. And as we all know, Nicky Lauda was left with his life on the line. The Nürburgring was, and still is, considered to be the most challenging and demanding circuit in the world. At the time of the 1976 German Grand Prix, the track was 14 miles in length, and because it wound its way around the Eiffel Mountains, it had over 1,000 feet of elevation change. Sir Jackie Stewart had nicknamed the track the Green Hell. Because of the length of the layout, the track required five times as many marshals and safety personnel than any other race on the calendar, but the organisers simply weren't able to provide this. And because it was so long, the track was exceptionally difficult to set up for, and to choose tyres for, as one part of the track could be wet, the other dry. In 1968, Jackie Stewart won one of the scariest races of all time after surviving the Nürburgring in torrential rain and fog, so racing in the wet was doable, but obviously far from ideal. And just in case you needed any more of a bad omen prior to the race taking place, a driver was killed after crashing just two weeks before the German Grand Prix. Autosport reported that this was the 131st fatality to take place at the Nürburgring during its 49-year history at the time. The death toll these days is hard to pin down, but it's somewhere between 200 and 300 people, and people continue to lose their lives to this day as they attempt to tame the beast during tourist and track day events. The track was a logistical nightmare in terms of trying to broadcast it on television and the decision had been made prior to the race that the 1976 German Grand Prix would be the final time a Grand Prix would take place on this, the most dangerous of tracks. But Formula 1 was very different in the 1970s. Danger and death was just as an integral part of the sport as things such as the traditional spraying of the champagne by the race winner. On average, two drivers would be killed each season, and the drivers knew the risk. In a way, they thrived off the risk. But Nicky Lauda knew the risk of racing at the Nürburgring was too great, and he tried protesting against the race even taking place at all, but to no avail. Hunt was on pole position for the race alongside Lauda ahead of the 14-lap event but everyone's worst nightmare started to materialise before their very eyes, and it started to rain just minutes before the start of the race. 
Practically everyone switched to wet tyres for the start, except for Jochen Mass, who stuck with the dries, and after the opening lap of the race, it was clear that the dries were the tyre to be on. Lauda dropped down the order after pitting to switch back to dry tyres and was pushing hard to make up for lost time. Nicky was naturally quick around the Nürburgring. He held the track record and was the first driver to lap the circuit in under 7 minutes the year prior. However, on the second lap of the race, whilst navigating a fast left kink, Lauda's Ferrari snapped violently to the right and crashed through the fencing and into an earth bank. The car spun back into the circuit, completely and utterly engulfed in flames. Nicky Lauda was trapped in his car with fire all around him. I can't even begin to imagine what was going through his mind. The pain must have been horrendous. His Ferrari was collected by two other cars as well, which was bad enough, and that's not even counting the fire. Nicky has said that he doesn't remember anything after the crash itself. His, he says his memory stops from just after he made his pit stop. The cause of the accident is up for debate. Some say it was a problem with the car, perhaps a, sus a suspension, and even some people think it was driver error. But we don't know for sure. Nicky would be sat in his car, in a ball of flames, for a minute. And as well as the burns to his skin, he inhaled the toxic fumes from the flames for that same amount of time. And that was just as bad. And because he was wearing a modified helmet, the foam inside had compressed and it slid off his head, leaving his face completely exposed to the flames. His fellow racing drivers tried desperately to help him, but the flames were too much. That was until one of his peers managed to undo his safety belts and he was evacuated from the scene. Because of the issues I'd mentioned before, it was several minutes for fire and medical crews to arrive at the crash site. John Watson tells the story of how he held Nicky in his lap, and Nicky was asking about his condition and whether he'd been burnt. Don told him no in an attempt to keep him calm. But in actual fact, this was far from the case. His ear was badly, badly burnt, as was his forehead. In fact, his scalp was charred. He was airlifted to hospital and soon fell into a coma. The race itself was eventually restarted, a race which James Hunt would go on to win. But Nicky Lauda's condition remained the key topic of discussion and one of the most incredible comebacks in F1 history was about to begin. Nicky's condition was far worse than it was initially feared. It wasn't so much the burns that were the issue, but his lungs and blood. He'd inhaled so much of the fumes. Doctors thought he wouldn't survive because of this alone and that his lungs were simply beyond repair. Nicky has said that he overheard the doctors basically say that he wasn't going to make it. Can you imagine overhearing that from the various medical experts trying to save your life? That you were beyond help? The days immediately following the crash he was fighting for his life. 
Nikki's wife arrived at the hospital and she started crying and screaming and it was this that made Nikki fully aware that he was in an absolutely horrendous state. Famously, even a priest arrived at his bedside and read him his last rites. No one expected Nikki to survive, including his wife, who he had been married to for less than six months. He has described feeling very tired at the hospital, like he wanted to go to sleep because his body couldn't handle the pain from the burns and from his lungs. But he knew it wasn't sleep, it was something else. He was certain that if he gave in to the tiredness, he wouldn't wake up again. So he fought this with his brain, listening out for any noises in an attempt to keep his brain busy listening for any conversations between nurses and doctors, anything, anything to keep his mind active. After five days, his condition was no longer considered to be life-threatening. His eyelids were surgically removed and his sweat glands were no longer working. He had also lost most of his right ear, but he was alive. The news of Nikki's condition had arrived in the Formula 1 paddock in time for the Austrian Grand Prix, Nikki's home race, but Ferrari didn't take part in the race weekend. James Hunt would take advantage of Nikki's absence and he would finish fourth in that race. And he would win the Dutch Grand Prix as well. The gap between himself and Lauda was now only two points, and with Nikki now seemingly out of the championship fight. It looked like James was well on his way to an easy driver's title. Or so he thought. Whilst James Hunt brought down the points tally between himself and Nicky Lauda, the Austrian could only look on from his hospital bed. And this drove Nicky to do something crazy. Something ridiculous, but it was also something amazing. Just six weeks after the crash, he was back behind the wheel of his Ferrari at their Fiorano test track in Maranello. However, Ferrari had already hired a replacement driver in the form of Carlos Reutemann. That didn't stop Nicky from strapping himself in the car, and he took to the track. However, his first practice session was short-lived. He couldn't change up into second gear because he was too frightened and he had a panic attack. Fear just hit him. He slowly made his way back to the pits and that was that. Nicky had returned too soon but that was the kind of character he was. A few days later Nicky tried again. He started very slowly but built the speed up and his confidence up until eventually he was as quick as ever. It became apparent that a return to a Grand Prix itself was on the cards, and to everyone's amazement, Lauda arrived at the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, ready to race. He had only missed two races. That's incredible. Despite this decision, no one expected much from Nicky that weekend. Surely he was destined to a race at the back of the field. After a crash like that, and a sudden return, he was no way he'd race at the front. Well, someone else was destined for a race at the back of the field at the Italian Grand Prix, 
and that was his title rival Hunt. McLaren's issues at the Italian Grand Prix, however, weren't on the track, but off it. Upon arriving at the paddock at Monza, McLaren team manager Alistair Caldwell was arrested by armed police. The Italian racing authorities were accusing McLaren of importing their fuel, provided by Texaco, to Italy illegally, and Caldwell was being accused of smuggling. Not only that, but McLaren managing director Teddy Mayer had been marched off to the steward's office and was told that they were going to be disqualified from the event after they'd tested the fuel and had determined that it was illegal. Teddy desperately argued their case and pleaded for the stewards to allow their drivers to start from their respective qualifying places for the race, and if they couldn't categorically prove that their fuel was legal, then by all means disqualify them then. But the stewards said no. In the end, James Hunt was allowed to start the Italian Grand Prix, but from the very back of the field. And his race would only last 11 laps as he crashed out of the race whilst trying to make his way through the field, much to the delight of the Tafosi. They jeered and booed James as he made his way back to his pit, and McLaren quickly left the circuit as some fans even attacked their car. It was the third off-track scandal involving McLaren of the season, and each one of them, in my honest opinion, is shady. The issue in Spain, the red flag in Britain, and now this. Yet Ferrari were never penalised for anything. Whilst it screams of being a conspiracy, it doesn't half add to the drama of what was an exceptional season. James was rightfully outraged and humiliated by the whole weekend. It simply, it simply wanted a straight battle with Nicky for the World Championship, not any of this off-track nonsense. The day after the Italian Grand Prix, the Italian authorities publicly apologised to McLaren and to Texaco, but it was little too late. But whilst James was having a weekend from hell at Monza, Nicky Lauda was in the midst of one of the greatest comebacks in the sport's history. He qualified in fifth position for the race and despite the pain, despite the pressure, not just from himself, but from the expectant Tifosi, Lauda brought his Ferrari home in an absolutely astonishing fourth place. Despite what he had been through, he had extended his championship lead heading into the final three races of the season. Whilst we all know the result of the world championship battle, and if you don't, you're about to, the fact that Nicky was able to race ever again, let alone a matter of weeks later on, is simply mind-blowing. For me, it's this race weekend, which puts Nicky in the discussion for being one of the very best drivers ever. Yes, he would win multiple championships and be very successful, but it was this dogged determination, drive and desire to, to race to win that set him apart from everyone else from his era. With Nicky back in the fight, and with James now very much in the fight, it was game on for the rest of the season. Hunt would win both the Canadian and the United States Grand Prix, with Lauda failing to score in the former and managing to finish in an amazing third place at Watkins Glen in the latter. With only three points between them, as they head to Mount Fuji in Japan for the final race of the season, the incredible 1976 Formula One World Championship was going to the wire. 
and it would be decided in the most dramatic of circumstances. The Japanese Grand Prix has been the home for many title-deciding races in F1's history. For many years, it was the venue which saw many world champions crowned. And in 1976, this would be no different. Mount Fuji wasn't the longest of circuits, but boy was it quick. And if it rained, it was seriously hazardous to race on. And as you'd expect in this season of twists and turns, come race day in Japan, it rained. It rained hard. It was practically monsoon conditions. Rivers of water were all over the circuit and fog made matters even worse. There were debates as to whether the race would even go ahead, but the race organisers decided that it should. They were worried about the potential lack of daylight if they held off much longer. That wouldn't stop the rain from coming down, mind, I'll just say. Many of the drivers were not happy at all about this, including Louder. The cars lined up on the grid, with Hunt second alongside Mario Andretti's Lotus. Louder was third. For Louder to become world champion, he needed to finish, simply finish ahead of Hunt. Something that had proven easy in the opening part of the season. For Hunt, to become world champion, he needed to win the race or finish second with Lauda finishing fourth or lower. His worst scenario was to finish fourth with Nicky finishing seventh or lower. In the event of a tie, Hunt would take the title due to winning more races than Lauda. Three points between them. Lauda on 68, Hunt on 65. The battle was on. As the race got underway, it became immediately apparent as the spray and lack of visibility that this was just appalling conditions to race in. Hunt took the lead into the first corner and that's where he would stay for most of the race. But what about Nicky Lauda? Well, after just two laps, he would pull into the pits and the Austrian retired his Ferrari. After everything that had happened, after everything he'd been through, his 1976 World Championship charge was over. The reason? There was an engine problem. Or that is what Ferrari team principal Daniel Aldetto wanted you to believe. It was the excuse he'd wanted to publicise. But in reality, Nicky Lauda parked his car because the conditions were too much and he didn't want it to continue anymore. He shot down his manager's idea of the race-ending engine problem. He didn't want the cover story, as he knew it'd backfire on him. Nicky was one of several cars to park up during the race due to the terrible conditions. And if you go on YouTube and look at the footage from the race, you'll see it for yourselves. Cars were aquaplaning all over the place, sliding, fishtailing, spinning, crashing. And Lauda knew, after coming so close to losing his life in a Formula 1 car, that even something as great as winning a world title wasn't worth that risk. Now, all Lauda could do was wait. James now needed to finish only fourth. 
and as he led the race from the front it looked like he was well on course to take the title with ease. That was until lap 62 where he lost the lead as the track started to dry, but no matter, third was more than enough to clinch the title. But James had been ignoring frantic pit signals from his team, pleading him to pit. His tyres were in a terrible state and by the time he made it into the pits he had two flat tyres. Not one, but two. The pit stop was long and painful to watch. His mechanics struggled to get a jack under the car to allow them to change the tyres, so one of his mechanics actually had to physically lift the car off the ground himself to allow the tyres to be changed. James was now slowly slipping down the order, and by the time he left his box and rejoined the race, he was now fifth. He was no longer in championship contention. His dream was over. And with only a handful of laps to go, there was no way he could catch the cars in front, despite his fresh rubber. He needed a minor miracle now. However, that came in the form of Clay Recazzoni, one of the drivers who had passed Hunt during his stop. He had retired. James was now in fourth place. And on lap 71 of 73, he passed Australian driver Alan Jones to take third. Andretti took the chequered flag to win the race, but all eyes were on the red and white McLaren as James Hunt crossed the line to become the 1976 Formula One World Champion. He had beaten Nicky Lauda by just one point, and he had done so in the most dramatic of circumstances. And the crazy thing was, he didn't even know he'd done it. He'd thought he'd missed out on the title by one position. Once he realised and was absolutely certain that he this was not the case, that he in fact had won the world championship, the relief came pouring in and the celebrations began. One person didn't know the result though, and that was Nicky Lauda, who was on his way to the airport. As Lauda parked up at the airport, he was met by a Ferrari team member, and according to Nicky, his face said it all and he thought, shit, something must have gone wrong. And he was officially confirmed that he was second in the standings. For a long time, this was the most dramatic end to a Formula 1 season the sport had ever seen. No world title had been won under such incredible, heart-stopping circumstances. I'd say this was surpassed by the 2008 season, which... I've discussed in the Lewis Hamilton episode of the podcast, but the 1976 Japanese Grand Prix is certainly up there. And it's a fitting end to one of the greatest battles for a world championship that Formula One have ever and will ever see. James Hunt arrived back in Britain, the new world champion, and just in case he wasn't a big enough star in his home country, now he was considered a national hero. He did the celebrity chat show, comedy show, award show rounds following his title glory, and he finished second at the prestigious BBC Sports Personality of the Year award ceremony, being beaten by figure skater John Curry. But despite his brash, confident personality that was evident both on the track and in the media, 
he didn't actually like all, the, all of the attention he got from becoming world champion. He didn't like people swooning and swarming around him everywhere he went. Murray Walker has said that he was the sort of guy who want, just wanted to go down to the pub with his friends and have a pint. And from 1977 onwards until his retirement from Formula One in 1979, his success dwindled and his passion for racing slowly faded away. He would famously continue on working in F1 as a commentator alongside Murray Walker, something he would become very good at. He was insightful, he was knowledgeable, he was passionate and he always spoke his mind. He would do this until his untimely death on the 15th of June 1993. He died due to a heart attack, aged just 45. I don't want to discuss James's career post-76 too much on this episode, as his story is certainly worthy of an episode of his own down the line. But just know, 25 years on from his death, he is still missed and is loved and respected by many people involved in Formula 1. One of which is Kimi Raikkonen. Kimi once actually entered and won a snowmobile race in his native Finland under the name James Hunt. Whilst James would bow out of the sport and subsequently pass away far too soon, Nicky Lauda would continue to have even more success. After losing the World Championship to Hunt, Nicky made amends the following year and took his second world title in 1977. Much like Hunt, I don't want to discuss Nicky's career too much here, as his story is also extremely fascinating and more than worthy of his own episode in the not too distant future. But he would take his third world title in 1984, beating his young teammate Alan Prost by just half a point. He would retire at the end of 1985 and since then he has been a constant presence in the Formula 1 paddock. He also had his own airline, Lauda Air, all the way until 1999 where he sold his shares to Austrian Airlines and he would be the boss of the Jaguar Formula 1 team in the early 2000s. But like I said, I want to hold off talking all about these things for now. As you can see, James and Nicky went on very different paths following their titanic battle for the title. But the story of this incredible battle will never be forgotten. And it's not just because of podcasts like this which tells the story of it. It's also down to a certain Hollywood movie, released in 2013 called Rush, directed by Ron Howard, which is based on Louder and Hunt's battle for the title. I have held off men mentioning Rush until now, because as far as being a point of reference for accurate information, Rush is not the place to go. There are many historical inaccuracies with the movie, which discount it as a creditable source of information. It's a brilliant film, mind. Don't get me wrong, it's shot brilliantly and it really sells the drama of this particular season. But the thing I find most frustrating about the film is that it portrays Nicky and James as being the worst of enemies when, in actual fact, through all the drama and pressures of racing against each other for championship glory, they were friends. Good friends. They'd been friends for years, dating back to their Formula 3 days. 
On the day of the United States Grand Prix, for example, Nicky had gone into James's hotel room and openly gloated to his friend that he was going to be world champion that day, leaving James a bit flustered but highly amused. They were seen chatting frequently and would visit each other in their respective garages. And for me, that makes their rivalry over the 1976 World Championship even greater. The great rivals... The great rivalries don't always have to be between two people who hate each other. In fact, I'd say the truly great ones come from drivers who like each other and who respect each other. Both knew the other's strengths and weaknesses, but they almost feared each other on the track because they knew how good the other was. Don't let Rush tell you that they hated each other because they didn't. James actually said that if he could, he would have shared the 76th crown with Nicky Lauda. And Nicky said that following the cinematic release of Rush, that he wished James could have seen the movie with him. That would have been the best. There are particular seasons which are so dramatic and so amazing that it almost leaves that flicker of doubt in your mind as to whether they actually happened. The 1976 season was one of those seasons. From off-track politics that quite frankly would shake the current day F1 paddock to its core, to amazing drives by some of the greatest to ever do it. From fiery near-fatal accidents to the most incredible of comebacks. From a championship all but lost to a championship won in the dying moments. 1976 had everything. But at its heart it had two drivers from two different teams fighting it out over the course of 16 gruelling races. Two drivers who raced to the limit and beyond. Two drivers who pushed themselves both physically and mentally in order to be the best come the end of the year. And it's left us with one of the truly remarkable stories to tell. A story of the greatest rivalry in Formula 1 history, and one that will be told for decades, if not centuries to come. You ask any Formula 1 fan worth their salt to name an iconic face-off between two drivers that will stand the test of time, you damn sure better know that they are going to say, Louder versus Hunt. This episode of F1 Everything was written and created by me, Rob. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast. I do hope I have done this great story justice. Make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud or whatever podcast app you use and give it a rating and leave a review. F1 Everything is also on Facebook. Just search for F1 Everything and be sure to give the page a like and also find the show on Twitter at F1 double underscore everything. I also host a side podcast called Film Face Off along with my friend Ben. So be sure to go and give that a listen as well. And one last thing, a shout out to my friend Sean Mann for suggesting this episode of the podcast. Thanks mate, I appreciate it and I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Rob Manifield and I'll see you around the next corner.